0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Covering All the Basis in SSC ILD Care Expert Strategies for Diagnosis, Treatment, and Managing Comorbidities. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash MVH 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Good evening. Welcome to our symposium on Covering All the Bases in SSC ILD Care, Expert Strategies for Diagnosis, Treatment, and Managing Comorbidities. So tonight's speakers will include myself, Lorinda Chung, Dr. Paul Noble, and Michelle Vega-Oliveau. So I wanted to review the agenda. These are uh, case-based sessions on recognition, diagnosis, and management of SSC-ILD in the context of an interprofessional approach to provide comprehensive care for patients. The first talk I will be giving on recognizing the signs, working together to diagnose SSC-ILD. Then uh, Paul Noble will speak on personalizing treatment for patients with SSC-ILD, a team-based approach. And finally, Michelle vega Olivo will speak about avoiding a fall through the cracks, managing comorbidities in patients with SSC ILD. I'm going to go ahead and start on recognizing the signs working together to diagnose SSC ILD. I'd like to begin with an illustrative case. This is a 53-year-old black female who in February of 2018 began having symptoms of swelling of her fingers new-onset Raynaud's phenomenon, and daily GERD symptoms. A couple of months later, she developed joint pains and started having tightening of her skin involving her hands, forearms, and face. In June 2018, she subsequently developed fatigue and further tightening of her skin with hypopigmentation on the chest and upper arms. One month later, she developed a persistent dry cough, which was unresponsive to azithromycin. And then in September 2018, she had worsening cough and progressive shortness of breath. Her past medical history was unremarkable, and she didn't have any allergies. She was only taking omeprazole as needed. She did not have any relevant autoimmune family history. Her social history included smoking, uh, which she quit in June of this year, and she had no other alcohol or other drug use, no recent travel or other exposures. On physical exam, she was afebrile, her blood pressure was 90 over 57, her respiratory rate was 16, her pulse was 90, and her oxygen saturation was 97% on room air. She was obese with a BMI of 32. She had diffuse skin tightening of her face, upper and lower arms, her chest, and had salt and pepper hyperhypopigmentation of her chest and her arms. Her nail folds showed uh, capillary dilatation. Her heart was regular rate and rhythm and lungs had fine bibasilar inspiratory crackles. On musculoskeletal exam, she had swelling and tenderness of multiple metacarpal phalangeal and uh, proximal interphalangeal joints. This is her chest X-ray, which showed low lung volumes and prominent interstitial bibasilar markings. She was referred for pulmonary function testing, which showed a forced vital capacity of 52% predicted. Her FEV1 was 57% predicted, and her ratio was 109%. She was unable to perform the diffusion capacity due to uncontrollable coughing. Her trans echocardiogram showed a small LV cavity with an estimated left ventricular ejection fraction of 69% her right ventricle was normal size and function. She had mild mitral regurgitation and she had an estimated right ventricular systolic pressure of 39. This is her high resolution CT scan of her chest, demonstrating ground glass opacities and some mild traction bronchiectasis. So symptoms of interstitial lung disease can be heterogeneous, Uh, Patients can present with shortness of breath, on exertion, cough, and fatigue. However, it's important to realize that many patients are actually asymptomatic, particularly early in disease. So when you evaluate a patient with systemic sclerosis for interstitial lung disease, it is definitely important to ask about symptoms. However, since I just mentioned patients are often asymptomatic, you should further evalu- evaluate patients with other tests, including pulmonary function tests, six-minute walking test, and high-resolution CT chest. We actually perform HRCTs on all patients um, who are newly diagnosed with systemic sclerosis, and this is considered the gold standard of diagnosis. Evidence of interstitial lung disease on high-res CT can be heterogene- heterogeneous, Um, In terms of the incidence of pulmonary involvement, particularly if patients are early in disease, also affected by the scleroderma subset and their autoantibody profile. In general, patients with diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis and those with positive SCL70 antibodies are at higher risk for interstitial lung disease. However, patients with limited cutaneous disease are still at risk and should be monitored as well. High-res CT um, of the chest in scleroderma ILD is predominantly of two different patterns, uh, non-specific interstitial pneumonitis and usual interstitial pneumonitis. On the uh, left-hand side, this shows a pattern of NSIP, where there's uh, particular ground glass opacities demonstrated by the red arrow and traction bronchiectasis. NSIP is probably the most common uh, type of ILD we see in scleroderma patients. UIP is more characterized by honeycombing, as uh, demonstrated by the blue arrows, and there can also be some ground glass changes. Survival in scleroderma ILD is dependent on the extent of involvement of the ILD. Goat et al. developed a criterion uh, to divide patients into limited disease versus extensive disease in terms of their ILD. So this can be based on high-res CT um, as the initial uh, test, looking at whether there's greater than or less than 20% involvement with fibrosis. So if there's less than 20% involvement, it's considered limited disease, whereas greater than 20% is considered extensive disease. If the amount of uh, uh, fibrotic changes is indeterminate, usually between 10 and 30% of change on the high-res CT, then the force vital capacity of the pulmonary function tests can help divide patients into limited versus extensive. And that cutoff is greater than or less than 70% predicted. So using these criteria, looking at the survival of SSC ILD patients, those with extensive disease have a 3.5-fold higher risk of death compared to those with limited disease. Looking at the extent of ILD based on force vital capacity alone, you can also see a differentiation. So in patients who have an FVC less than 55% predicted, their 10-year survival is about 55%. This is compared to intermediate involvement, 75 to 56% um, percent predicted of the FVC, where their survival was 74%. And 10-year survival is up to 87% in those with a fairly normal FVC, greater than 75% predicted. So how do we screen for SSC-ILD when we see a new patient with systemic sclerosis? As I mentioned, we perform pulmonary function tests, including diffusion capacity, for all patients. We also do a baseline high-resolution CT scan on all patients. If there's no evidence of interstitial lung disease on either of these tests, then you can continue monitoring the patient with repeat pulmonary function tests every three to six months for the first three to five years, and then annually thereafter if they're all considered normal. If a patient demonstrates extensive interstitial lung disease on high-risk CT um, with ILD of greater than or equal to 20% or indeterminate between 10 and 30% with a low FBC less than 70% predicted, we would treat those patients. If there's limited disease as defined by ILD on high-risk CT less than 20%, or indeterminate with an FVC greater than or equal to 70% predicted, and there are no risk factors for progression, you can continue to monitor that patient with pulmonary function tests regularly. However, if a patient with limited disease has risk factors for progression, then we would highly recommend treating that patient. So what are the risk factors for progression? This is a nice review that um, Volkman uh published in the Journal of Scleroderma and Related Diseases. And there are multiple different risk factors that can um, increase the risk for progression of SSC ILD. Male sex, African-American race, and increased age are demographic characteristics that increase the risk. Diffuse cutaneous patients, those with a high modified Rodnan skin score at the time of their ILD diagnosis, and those with a shorter disease duration are more likely to progress. If there's moderate to severe restrictive physiology at diagnosis or a decline in the force vital capacity and diffusion capacity over the first one to two years, those patients are more likely to progress. We already discussed that extensive involvement on high-res CT is a risk factor for progression, as well as the SEL70 antibody. There are also serum biomarkers that are available at some centers that have been associated with a high risk for progression. and Those include KL6, CCL18, and CRP, which should be available at all centers. Factors that are associated with slow or no ILD progression include limited cutaneous skin disease, a lower modified Rodnan skin score at presentation, and longer disease duration. Stable pulmonary function tests over the first four to five years from the diagnosis of ILD are a good prognostic sign. And if there is none to mild reticulations on high-risk CT, centromere antibodies and RNA polymerase antibodies are actually protective from ILD progression. SSC ILD, why a team approach? Pulmonary practice guidelines typically recommend review by a multidisciplinary team consisting of a pulmonologist, radiologist, and pathologist to ensure accurate diagnosis and classification of ILD. Rheumatologists, however, add value to a multidisciplinary team. Input often leads to changes in diagnosis, as shown in multiple studies. Rheumatologic assessment reclassified 21% of patients diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And the number of patients classified as having ILD with autoimmune features increased by 77%. In another study, 30% of patients in an interdisciplinary ILD program were found to have well-defined connective tissue diseases, half of whom were newly diagnosed with the connective tissue disease by virtue of their ILD evaluation. So in summary, interstitial lung disease occurs in the majority of patients with systemic sclerosis and adversely affects quality of life, function, and survival. Symptoms of ILD include dyspnea, cough, and fatigue, but many patients are asymptomatic initially. Therefore, the early diagnosis of ILD may improve outcomes, particularly now that we have treatments available. The high-risk CT is the gold standard for diagnosis of ILD. So I'd like to answer a few of the questions uh, posed by the audience. First of all, uh, most dermatologists refer systemic sclerosis patients to rheumatology and or pulmonary medicine for long-term follow-up. Is there any place for dermatologists in the care of these patients? So I have a strong bias that dermatologists are definitely necessary to care for these patients. Um, Not only do patients uh, at least a third of the time have diffuse skin tightening, but they will have multiple other cutaneous manifestations such as digital ulcers, calcinosis, and telangiectasias. Evaluation of these patients is really helpful by dermatologists, um, not only in the diagnosis, but also in the subsequent follow-up care. At what point do you refer SSC patients for pulmonary function tests? So at initial diagnosis, we refer patients immediately for pulmonary function testing. In fact, even if patients who are early on um, undifferentiated connective tissue disease, we often will um, assess pulmonary function to evaluate for underlying interstitial lung disease that may give a final diagnosis of systemic sclerosis. So not only at the initial diagnosis, but subsequently every three to six months for the first few years and subsequently annually. So I'd now like to introduce uh, Dr. Paul Noble. So
2: let's, uh, let's continue uh, with this conversation, this 53-year-old uh, Black woman with an ANA of 1 to 640, negative rheumatoid factor, a CCP that's elevated, uh, positive SSA. Uh, and a positive SCL seven uh, sed rate that's less than thirty and a low um, C reactive protein. Um, so these are the sort of folks I see all the time. It's it's rare to me that as an interstitial lung disease doctor that they come uh, with uh, with sort of a. A very, very clear cut, uh, underlying, uh, diagnosis from a re- rheumatologic standpoint. So clinically, this patient, the final diagnosis was uh, diffuse cutaneous, sc- uh, scleroderma with a positive SCL70 and extensive ILD. Uh, but you also noticed that she had a positive, uh, CCP. Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting that you can see, uh, sometimes a panoply of, um, of autoimmune antibodies, um, and that's why it's so great to have uh, your, our rheumatology colleagues working with us. You know, from my standpoint, um, I'm sort of focusing on: is this somebody I'm going to want to treat with immunosuppressive therapy or not? Uh, but as we heard with the lung function, uh, the prognosis is uh, is concerning for sure. So, um, you know, risk factors for uh, progressive scleroderma. Um, it, our older age, uh, diffuse cutaneous subset, uh, the anti SCL 70 positive antibody, uh, decreased FVC. Uh, I would like to make a brief comment about this because, um, you know, in my world where the patients are referred uh, because they have interstitial lung disease, particularly with scleroderma, um, Dr. Chung sort of mentioned the importance of the skin. You know, I've seen patients over the years that have been um, thought to have worsening lung function. But, you know, FEC is a very effort dependent maneuver and either weakness or skin tightening can impact the FEC. So I think it's always important to keep in mind uh, what is the etiology of the decline in FEC. Is there any reason to think there's a functional contribution? Similarly with dyspnea, patients can be breathless for a lot of reasons, only one of which might be worsening interstitial lung disease. The DLCO is very helpful. A low DLCO at baseline, also because it's not uncommon to have coexistent pulmonary hypertension when you have a low DLCO, and ever if a smoking history is is is, is not good. Um, but from my perspective, uh, almost irrespective of the interstitial lung disease, um, if the patient has an oxygen saturation that drops below eighty-eight percent with walking, that's a very poor prognostic indicator. As you know, in scleroderma, that can be challenging because of the Ray nodes. Sometimes earlobe or forehead oximetry needs to be performed. But it, from the standpoint of the pulmonologist, this is one of the most important tests I like to get early on um, in, the, in the diagnosis and management. And it's really all about the HRCT, as, as Dr. Chung said, it's the pattern. One point also is that particularly in patients that are obese, um, the CT scan you saw earlier, I would bet that some of that ground glass opacity is to, is, would, would go away if you flip the patient. So prone imaging is very, very helpful to get a better indication of the precise amount of uh, interstitial lung disease uh, that there is, but, uh, the combination, as we heard of the extent of disease on HRCT, the degree of FEC impairment, degree of diffusing capacity and positive antibodies, uh, these are, uh, are worrisome for progressive disease. So, um, As a pulmonologist, um, I really like uh, mycophenolate. I sometimes will also use a small dose of prednisone. I always chat with my rheumatology colleagues because I know they can be concerned about precipitating some renal issues. In my experience of uh, nearly three decades now, I must admit uh, I haven't seen that with low-dose prednisone and mycophenolate. Um, And uh, that is titrated up to three grams um, per day. The rheumatologists like to use three grams. Sometimes I'll use two grams because of concerns about reactivation of zoster or opportunistic infections. Um, So as far as the joints go, um, you know, I I leave that to my rheumatology colleagues. My my goal is the lungs. This patient was started also on uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine. Meprazole, very, very important. There's enormous, enormous existence of reflux, often which can be occult in patients with scleroderma. One of the biggest challenges to long-term management, as I'm sure Dr. Chung would agree, uh, are the esophageal dysmotility issues, particularly when one is entertaining the possibility of a lung transplant. And then treatment for the Raynaud's with amylotipine. So lung function, I like to follow every three months, um, including the walk test. When that can be done as well. And so, you know, this is this is a typical um, management approach initially in patients with interstitial lung disease related to an autoimmune disease in this particular case. So managing uh, scleroderma related interstitial lung disease really is a team approach for sure. And um, that's why I personally really enjoy working with my rheumatologic colleagues, focusing on really the whole systemic aspect of the disease where I tend to focus more on the interstitial lung disease and the, and the potential progression to a fibrotic uh, lung disease. But uh, this slide is a great example of uh, the multiple aspects um, of the disease, uh, supplemental oxygen is, some, is something you really need to look at, uh, particularly because if patients um, have um, desaturation with exertion, they may tend to um, lead to more pulmonary hypertension. And the worst combination is fibrotic lung disease and pulmonary hypertension in a scleroderma patients. The prognosis uh, is is really uh, very limited, and, and those patients often will be need need to be considered for the possibility of a lung transplant but vaccinations are something that is often overlooked and very very important so having a team approach good internist good rheumatologist and a good pulmonologist offers your patients the the best opportunities for long-term outcomes so the pharmacologic treatment of scleroderma ild um, historically um, has involved immunosuppressive therapy but obviously there's been um, new data with the uh, antifibrotic medication Nintenib, um, and uh, more recently, the um, the IL-6 antagonist Tocilizumab as well. So um, initially on evaluating patients, um, um, I, I tend to use, um, you know, uh, targeting uh, the immune system first, mycophenolate, sometimes with a small dose of prednisone as well, and then Observe them if they show um, evidence of progression. um, Again, the most important thing in my view is sorting out the physiology of the disease. If there's evidence of uh, worsening restrictive lung disease, worsening oxygenation, or development of pulmonary hypertension, that certainly is an indication for additional therapy. We know from treating chronic fibrotic lung disease of almost any etiology, if there's progression on underlying treatment, the use of an antifibrotic like an will slow the loss of lung function. So that is my approach in general, starting with monotherapy, as opposed to combination therapy, and then looking to evaluate the rate of progression. If patients are stable, Occasionally, not as often as we'd like, we see some improvement in lung function. Importantly, that can also be uh, related to the management of the, of the skin uh, disease as well, which I'm told by my colleagues is not generally enormously responsive to mycophenolate, but there may be other therapies that are used to treat the skin disease. The improvement in the skin disease can sometimes see an improvement in the underlying lung function. So historically, uh, cyclophosphamide uh, was used, um, and the pioneering studies from Dr. Tashkin um, you know, have shown that um, patients can can show some evidence of improvement that is generally not sustained over years. Although uh, cyclophosphamide uh, was used, it's much less common. Um, uh, for the interstitial lung disease, uh, than it used to be, but it is still a consideration monthly IV cyclophosphamide, um, generally would be re- reserved for patients who did not have a good, uh, response, uh, to mycophenolate. So there was a the sclerodermal lung study too, which was looking at mycophenolate, uh, versus cyclophosphamide, you know, and, and essentially, um, The main take home message from that was that uh, the side effects were were better with the mycophenolate. Um, And there, you know, there was some, you know, some trends indeed as well for mycophenolate being better. I think when you look at the overall uh, risk benefit, um, the potential complications of cyclophosphamide, particularly in uh, women of childbearing age, we do tend to go with, uh, with mycophenolate from the pulmonary standpoint. So rituximab uh, is sometimes used as a second-line agent. I would have to say that uh, my re- main reason for getting a rheumatologic consult on my patients is to address the issue of whether they um, would like to give rituximab. In my experience, rheumatologists love rituximab. Um, But it is um, a little bit unclear uh, when to use rituximab. But um, it generally is well tolerated from the standpoint of opportunistic infections. Um, And I think it is something to consider in collaboration with your rheumatologist uh, if patients have progressive uh, interstitial lung disease. So antifibrotic therapy. So I come at this from the idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis uh, world. I was one of the original uh, investigators involved in Nintedanib, which was on all of the New England Journal publications that led to FDA approval, coming at it from the standpoint of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And then the scleroderma trial um, was second, and it was a terrific trial. I was not involved directly in it, but I'm very familiar with the data. So what Nintedanib is, is a multi-kinase inhibitor. You may have heard about these in the concept of cancer so a drug like uh, avastin you know is a multi kinase inhibitor um serafinib for renal cell carcinoma multi kinase inhibitor intended in fact was being developed in Europe for certain types of cancers um and then we were able to convince um uh, Baringer engelheim at the time, that, that progressive pulmonary fibrosis has many features that are similar uh, to cancer in the sense of growth factors driving the progression of fibrosis. Um, and so that's what we think this drug does. It makes it harder for fibroblasts to make collagen. And of course, scleroderma a disease is a disease of collagen production in the skin, in the lungs, in the heart, in almost any organ in the body. So these were the results. Um, so this is, so patients were randomized to uh, receive either nintedanib or placebo. Interestingly, and I think this is one of the uh, most intriguing aspects of the clinical trial is that up to half of the patients were actually on mycophenolate. So then patients were randomized. And whether you were on mycophenolate or not, if you received nintedanib there was a 50% reduction in the loss of force vital capacity. Now, just for your frame of reference, patients that suffer from idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, a much more severe and progressive disease with a much higher mortality rate, they lose, on average, twice what a scleroderma patient loses in a year. The clinical trial results showed that those that loss of FEC was also reduced in half. So it was a very similar magnitude of treatment effect, although in general, scleroderma patients tend to progress to progress slower than IPF patients. But what's not shown on this slide, but what is interesting is that patients that were on uh, my- mycophenolate and also randomized to an intentative had the best response in terms of loss of FEC. Patients do not Get better. Their FVC does not go up as a general rule, so it is important to manage expectations. Where the interesting clinical conversation is, is do patients can they feel this difference in FVC? And and I think that is um, a little bit unclear. But we know that in general, loss of FVC over time correlates with a worse prognosis. So collectively. Data from the, the uh, census trial suggests that the effect of Nintendo on slowing progression of disease persists beyond 52 weeks. So it, it does seem to be a durable effect. Um, it and in terms of reducing the loss of, of lung function and, and, and subgroup analysis found that nintendative reduced the progression of ILD, both in patients with scleroderma who were and were not using mycophenolate. But as I mentioned, the treatment effect uh, was was slightly better if you were on nintendative and mycophenolate, which raises interesting management issues. So in addition, it's uh, Nintetidib was shown to slow the rate of decline in patients with and without GERD. We do think that GERD can contribute to the rate of progression uh, in fibrotic lung disease. Um, So it's uh, it's important uh, to be aware of that and uh, initiate treatment and persistent evaluation uh, of the esophageal motility. So to we, of course, became very familiar during the COVID epidemic as a pulmonologist in the medical ICU. We uh, saw a lot of use of tocilizumab. So this is a really interesting study. It was approved, um, you know, uh, uh, by the FDA um, and I was not involved with this study, um, and have spoken to a number of my pulmonary and rheumatology colleagues, and it raises sort of a really interesting question as as the primary endpoint was completely negative. So looking at the skin endpoint, uh, interestingly, also for an intentive, the skin endpoint was negative, uh, which which you know fits with a long term belief, a clinical saw, if you will, that the skin and the lung don't always behave the same. So what was interesting in this group was that the the placebo group had a rather um, dramatic, if you will, loss of FEC that was not seen um, in the treatment arm, um, which which is shown here. So uh, patients with scleroderma had a, uh, a very impressive loss in FVC in the p- placebo group. This is a little bit uh, more than what we generally think of, uh, clinically. Um, but this difference led to, uh, FDA approval, even though it was uh, not a primary endpoint, it was a key secondary endpoint. But I think the community is still wrestling with this a little bit in terms of, uh, of uh, how comfortable they are uh, initiating treatment. So in terms of the safety and tolerability of profenidone, I'm very well-versed in profenidone, uh, having been involved with it, with IPF from the very beginning and was the lead author on the initial uh, Lancet study, where it showed a split result and the senior author on the New England Journal paper that showed the definitive impact in reducing the loss of lung function. Uh, in patients with IPF, um, and so um, it's interesting to look at this as well. Uh, Profenidone in in scleroderma, and it was the, the trial uh, looked at you know at at groups based on um, mild, moderate, and severe uh, aspects in terms of the disease. Small numbers of patients. Um, And so as you look here, you can see that 75 patients received uh, mycophenolate um, or placebo or perfenidone. And it was kind of a one month follow up. It's an ongoing trial. So it's interesting. All the patients received mycophenolate plus or minus uh, perfenidone. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. uh, in, in regard to the role of profenidone uh, in in uh, scleroderma-related interstitial lung disease, so lung transplant um, is uh, is a challenge in scleroderma, um, and there are some uh, institutions that are more inclined to pursue that uh, than other, than others. But in carefully selected patients, without extra pulmonary systemic disease. Experience similar survival after lung transplants compared to those patients with end-stage pulmonary diseases. As I mentioned, probably one of the key issues is the esophagus and how functional the esoph- esophagus is, because there's quite a bit of data to suggest that ongoing reflux um, is um, more inclined uh, it, to, to uh, have patients develop obliterative bronchiolitis, which is the main cause of mortality following lung transplant. Many patients without scleroderma will get an esophageal wrap, but that's a little bit more challenging from a, uh, a surgical standpoint in patients with scleroderma. So um, you need a center that has extensive experience and carefully selects patients, but it should be pursued in my view, at least in terms of the possibility of transplant. So in summary, interstitial lung disease is the leading cause of death in in scleroderma and may be the initial manifestation of scleroderma. I think that's a really important point. Over the years, I've seen a number of patients that will present with ILD three, five, sometimes seven years later, manifest their autoimmune disease, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis arthritis or scleroderma. Uh, So I think that's really, really important. What that CT looks like, whether it looks like it's um, nonspecific interstitial pneumonitis, fibrotic NSIP, or a UIP pattern, very helpful in evaluating uh, treatment options. Very important to have a collaborative uh, effort, um, multidisciplinary clinics serve patients the best. Treatment should be initiated promptly in patients who have progressive disease. Any evidence of physiologic impairment that you think is due to the lung, in my opinion, should, uh, should trigger a serious conversation about initiating treatment. And treatment options, uh, there are a number. Targeting the immune system. Targeting uh, the ability of fibroblasts to make collagen or targeting IL6, I personally am inclined if if feasible, to use a combination of of treating the underlying immune system with uh, mycophenolate and intetanib if patients progress. The reason I like to start with the mycophenolate is in my experience, some patients will will improve, whereas in te- tentative it's unlikely. That that's going to be the case. So it's an interesting time for fibrotic lung disease in the setting of scleroderma. It's a it's it, there. It's great to have positive trials, and I'm sure there'll be more, more work to come in the future. So, um, w- uh, would you select tosiluzumab, uh, rituximab, cyclophosphamide, or nintedamab as a second line therapy in scleroderma ILD? Um, so I would I would consult with my rheumatologist as to whether we thought rituximab would be the way to go because i would be inclined to give another shot at targeting the underlying immune response uh, before going to nintentative if we don't think that's um, a viable option then i would uh, then i would go with the Um, nintentative many patients with scleroderma ild will have difficulties tolerating antifibrotics through the gi side effects so this is a key issue An intended in general, uh, independent of scleroderma, uh, that's the predominant untoward, uh, side effect are, is, uh, is GI issues, particularly diarrhea. It's the, it's an, it's a multi-kinase inhibitor and that's a class effect. So loperamide is reasonable diet management, um, taking medication on a full stomach. Um, but I think that's one of the biggest limitations, uh, for nintedanib in scleroderma, because they have an underlying higher predisposition for GI issues. Um, how early should nintedanib be started in patients with uh, scleroderma ILD? So, in patients um, who have progressed despite targeting the immune system with mycophenolate uh, or rituximab, um, and they're symptomatic, um, I would be inclined to uh, to, to start uh, nintedanib with the goal of reducing. Uh, Lung function, um, it's challenging only because of the tolerability issues, but if they tolerate it, then I think it's very reasonable. If if they've shown evidence of disease progression, I would not, as a general rule, use it out of the box. Thank you. I would now like to introduce Michelle Vega-Olivo. Thank you.
3: Now we're going to talk about avoiding the fall through the cracks and managing um, comorbidities in patients with scleroderma, um, ILD. We're going to continue on um, with our consult patient. Um, we know that she has a history of diffuse cutaneous scleroderma and extensive interstitial lung disease. Um, we know that the medications that she's taking is mycophenolate, 1,500 milligram twice a day, um, hydroxychloroquine uh, twice a day for her arthritis, omeprazole 20 milligrams, and amlodipine for her Raynaud's. And um, she quit smoking in June. So um, in my experience, I'm lucky to work with great pulmonologists, rheumatologists, um, and a GI team. Um, so when patients uh, come in to clinic, uh, they're evaluated or assessed with the GERD Q questionnaire. And we see here that our consult patient's uh, score was 12. Um, and if you look at the bottom of the screen, the slide, you see that uh, she uh, has an 89% likelihood of having GERD. So she's complaining of symptoms, She, despite being on uh, deliomeprazole. So her dose was increased to twice daily and consideration of a GI specialist, if no improvement. She also complains of frequent nocturnal awakenings and fatigue. She um, she did an Epworth sleepiness scale in clinic, which showed that her score was 15, um, showing that she has excessive daytime uh, symptoms. A polysomnogram was ordered, and the results came back that she had an apnea hypopnea index score of 20, and she was diagnosed with moderate sleep apnea. She was started on CPAP initiation for her sleep apnea. So why is this important when patients come into clinic uh, with uh, scleroderma and ast lung disease? Um, it's important to identify, assess, and manage these comor- sorry, comorbidities, um, not just to uh, decrease the progression of disease and symptoms, but also for the quality of life for our patients. So we know, um, as we've heard from Dr. Noble and Dr. Chung that uh, the GI tract is commonly involved. The prevalence in these patients are 54 to 90%. And the most frequent complications involves the esophagus. Cases are up to 30 to 96%. And this leads to a significant reduction in a patient's quality of life. The two main um, complaints that patients with esophageal uh, disease have normally are from GERD, They complain of regurgitation and acid reflux and or with esophageal dysmotility, and they have complaints of chest pain and dysphagia. Overall, 40 to 80% of patients with scleroderma, um, the incidence of side effects, um, are 40 to 80%. Um, but some percentage of patients are asymptomatic despite having a documented case of or diagnosis for GI disease. GERD occurs in both diffuse and limited scleroderma and may contribute to interstitial lung disease via microaspiration. And these patients uh, that we see in clinic that have interstitial lung disease, about 68% of patients have obstructive sleep apnea. And if left untreated, can aggravate the the GERD symptoms as well as make um, the esophagus disease worse um, causing um, esophageal strictures, esophagitis, or Barrett's esophagus. So the reason why this happens is because during these events of repetitive um, upper airway collapse, the patient's still trying to breathe. And in turn, it creates a negative chest pressure that creates a negative transdiaphragmatic pressure that's greater in the stomach, allowing these juices or acids to come up into the lungs and um, chest. So Ragu did a study um, looking at gastroesophageal reflux and interstitial lung disease. And up to 90% of the patients in the study with ILD had GERD, but only half are symptomatic. 12 of the 19 patients with interstitial lung disease receiving a PPI during the 24-hour pH probe monitoring, had abnormal acid exposure. So this concluded that standard doses of um or PPIs may not suppress acid reflux fully in patients with interstitial lung disease. Studies that were done um, uh, down the line, uh, Fu, Sharon, and Etal did a study where it showed that a high rate of partial um, PPI GERD response in patients with scleroderma. Although um, the patients had a partial response in this study, the patients uh, still reported um, stability in their symptoms, and they had an improvement in their overall quality of life related to five, the five health dimensions, um, which included self-care, mobility, pain, um, and discomfort, as well as anxiety and depression. So what these results reflect is that we know that GERD is problematic in patients with uh, gastro reflux disease. But a partial response in PPI still had a beneficial response in these patients. So it was recommended that PPIs be the first line of therapy and treatment with patients with GERD. In this uh, study, um, a retrospective analysis, it looked at GERD, GERD therapy, and the association with longer survival. And the Kaplan-Meier plot, if you look um, at the graph C, you see that patients that were treated uh, with GERD medications uh, were in the navy, the darker color, and patients that were not were in orange. And what it showed was that uh, patients that were on therapy uh, had a longer survival, 1400 days, Whereas patients that did not have um, th- or not being treated for therapy, their survival days were 900. Similarly, if you look at the uh, graph next to it, you see that patients that um, underwent a Nissan pl- fund also had a longer survival in initial lung disease. So this study suggests that there's at least an association with uh, GERD treatment and survival in patients with interstitial lung disease. This study also showed, interestingly enough, is that patients that were on treatment had a lower radiologic fibrosis score and a longer survival when treated. So when patients come in, how do we screen patients? Uh, the GERD questionnaire is a non-invasive screening tool with a high sensitivity for diagnosis of GERD and SSC. A score of equal to or greater the, of four and uh, greater than eight and equal to indicates uh, respective sensitivity and specificity of 96.9% and 50% and 65 to 100% for diagnosis in patients with GERD. So it can be used in patients, um, particularly in patients uh, that can't undergo invasive procedures such as an EGD because of the potential for complications due to structural um, complications from their uh, scleroderma disease, um, or if patients uh, cannot obtain a 24-hour pH monitoring if not available. So how do we approach treating patients uh, with SSC and ILD? It's similar to the patients that come in that do not have scleroderma and have a history of GERD. Um, however, uh, patients that have scleroderma we know have more profound, severe um, manifestations or symptoms with GI disease. Um, so, although we recommend lifestyle modifications for every patient with GERD, this may not be enough or adequate for patients with scleroderma. So, in general, we, you know, we want to recommend supportive measures with these patients. We want to tell them to chew their foods well, avoid big bites, use water as a complement to solid foods, stop smoking if they're still smoking. Um, and elevate the head of the bed with a wedge. Patients who um, have esophageal symptoms, uh, we want to use first-line therapy treatments such as PPIs. Um, there's still um, investigations on the therapeutic uh, dosages and frequency when we treat our patients with scleroderma, but it's not uncommon in the clinical practices to see patients at a higher dose of PPIs. And sometimes um, we need to add on therapies such as prokinetics um, and consider maybe surgical management. Surgical management can be questionable in some patients, especially if they have profound, severe uh, esophageal dysmotility. So patients with motility therapies, um, consideration of prokinetics to treat um, or improve their lower esophageal sphincter press uh, pressures and peristalsis. Or emergency, um, emergent therapies, uh, such as boostbarone, which there's still lots of investigation on this drug. Um, it helps with esophageal, uh, motility. Patients reported an improvement in their acid reflux, uh, symptoms in some of the trials. However, there was an improvement in their, uh, score when it came to chest pain or, um, dysphagia. So there's still, a lot of information or a lot of um, research that needs to be done in this arena. So sleep apnea and interstitial lung disease, many of the trials were done in um, patients with with IPF, but this likely carries over to all interstitial lung diseases because of the pathophysiology of the restrictive lung disease. We know that sleep apnea is um, repetitive upper airway closure, um, during sleep. In uh, patients without any interstitial lung disease, this seems to get worse as we age 20 to 25 percent. However, in patients with interstitial lung disease, this is higher. Um, we know that patients that have interstitial lung disease have a poor sleep quality uh, related to their cough, their reflux, or um, hypoxia, and sleep apnea. Um, they tend to have a different sleep architecture. They have lighter sleep stages and decreased REM sleep, which is important for cognitive fun- function during the day. So as clinicians, when patients come in and we're evaluating for sleep apnea, we ask them questions such as, you know, does your significant other or your spouse tell you that you snore? Do you wake up gasping for air? But with patients with sleep apnea, it may be a little different. It might be a little subtle. So if a patient comes in and they say they don't snore and they don't wake up gasping for air, this doesn't rule them out for sleep apnea. So patients uh, with ILD and sleep apnea may have uh, frequent awakenings, um, nocturia, and a decreased concentration during the day. So we need to evaluate these patients um, further and not rule them out if some of these symptoms aren't similar to patients without interstitial lung disease. So interesting enough, some of the risk factors overlap with interstitial uh, lung disease and sleep apnea. If you look at the chart, it's highlighted um, patients uh, have obesity, they have a history of GERD, coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, as well as pulmonary hypertension. And we know that with interstitial lung disease, you can have severe secondary pulmonary hypertension and left untreated sleep apnea can actually make those pressures worse. So in this study by Lisa Lancaster et al., um, she and her uh, crew um, started noticing at their clinic that there was a higher prevalence of patients with sleep apnea and interstitial lung disease. So they evaluated 50 patients from their center, and they performed the sleep apnea evaluation through an Epworth sleepness scale or a sleep apnea scale of sleep disorders questionnaire. So what it showed was that 88% of the patients in the study had sleep apnea um, and ILD. And out of the 88%, 68% had moderate to severe sleep apnea. So even though this is a small study, it's it, it has profound um, results. So it recommends or it's In clinical, we should um, actually evaluate patients uh, for sleep apnea and uh, treat when needed. So in this cohort study, it looked at the association of sleep apnea, interstitial lung disease, and improved survival. So it looked at patients, 50 patients, that were compliant on CPAP um, versus patients that were not compliant on CPAP therapy and their survival. So interestingly, if you look at the bottom of the chart, The number of deceased patients you see that the patients at five years that were compliant um, had their first deaths and patients that were non-compliant had deaths at 24 months so at five years 90 percent of the patients that were compliant on uh, pap therapy were still alive versus 40 percent of the patients that were not compliant so um, concluding that patients that had, um, or are compliant with apnea had improved survival. So we talk about oxygen, um, with patients with interstitial lung disease. And when they come to clinic, we, we assess them frequently with six minute walk tests with exertion. Um, we look to see if they needed, um, at rest or, you know, in their daily activity. But in this study, um, it shows that, um, they, they actually looked at sleep oxygen desaturation, nocturnal desaturation, and survival with patients in IPF. So 31 patients that were newly diagnosed and untreated IPF, it showed that the nocturnal desaturation with sleep far exceeded the desaturation with maximal exercise. And the lowest saturations were directly related with survival. Also, in a study by Lee, uh, they looked at this disordered, Breathing during sleep and exercise, and the role of biomarkers. So it also has similar um, similar results that showed saturation was lower during sleep than exercise, and desaturations were greater in patients that had uh, an AHI greater than five. And also uh, the role of biomarkers, which is still being investigated, um, the biomarkers that are associated with IPF were elevated and they were higher in patients that had the lowest desaturation. So what do we take from these studies? That uh, patients that come in with interstitial lung disease, have sleep apnea, scleroderma, that we should uh, evaluate patients with, um, in the beginning of diagnosis, if they're complaining of fatigue, consider um, evaluating patients nocturnally and doing a nocturnal oximetry to see if they require oxygen at night with sleep to improve their survival. So in summary, comorbidities such as GERD and sleep apnea affect a significant amount of patients with SSC interstitial lung disease. And if unidentified and untreated, these comorbidities may impair quality of life impact respiratory status, and ultimately lead to disease progression and death. So identifying patients early and accurate treatment of comorbidities is essential for patients with uh, SSC ILD. So how do you manage scleroderma ILD in patients that have other significant um, GI diseases? So in practice, uh, we work closely with gastroenterologists and um, make referrals um, for If patients are still symptomatic, um, uh, we follow their symptoms, but we make these referrals um, and work closely with the gastroenterologist. What impact have current treatment options had on quality of life, and is there a role for non-pharmacologic treatment? So PPIs have been um, recommended for the first line of therapy, but there's emerges, emerging therapies that are being investigated. So placing patients on PPIs early in, um, on in disease and evaluating their GERD and their symptoms, despite patients being asymptomatic, is important. Um, referring them to GI early to be evaluated, especially if patients are um, going to be uh, candidates for transplants so that you can prevent progression of disease or even just improve a patient's quality of life.
1: Thank you, Dr. Noble and um, Michelle uh, Vega Olivo, for your wonderful presentations. And thank you all for joining us tonight. I hope you enjoy your evening.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash mvh860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.